0: being here. This is another Meet Kevin Report. We are on Meet Kevin Report 20. And a little announcement. Next week, we are finally, finally uh, officially starting, uh, rather than just a trading challenge with uh, course members, which some of which we'll also be talking about publicly, uh, we will be doing a team trading challenge. And so the neat thing about that is we'll be getting the input from everyone on our team into our trade decisions. And so rather than just sort of having one mindset going in, we'll have everyone involved. Uh, so it's going to It'll be really fun. So we start that uh, probably for CPI uh, next week. We'll uh, we'll play some trades and uh, hey, win or lose, we'll talk about it. And I think it's uh, it'll be fun. It'll be a uh, great uh, education and training for, for everyone. So we're really excited about that. So stay tuned for uh, a lot more talk about that next week. Then uh, we have an update from Nicola that Nicola is working on hydrogen fuel networks. Uh, to support their electric trucks. Uh, They're planning on having three stations in California, a total of 60 stations by 2026. Now, I want to actually give a compliment to Nikola, which is probably the worst thing to do since everybody hates Nikola. Well, at least after the Trevor Milton roll the truck down the hill to make it work look. Uh, the, The one idea that they had that was absolutely phenomenal, and you have to consider it, The one idea that Nikola had that was phenomenal was that if we are going to have hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, we need people to have hydrogen fueling stations. And so what was the best possible Trojan horse in my opinion? They didn't even talk about this as much as the Trojan horse as it was. The best possible Trojan horse was tricking basically the demand for hydrogen. Think, think about that for a moment. Uh, so, so roll with me here. If you have, let's say we write here, you have, uh, you wanna buy a hydrogen car. Uh, what, what are you going to do before you buy a hydrogen car? Well, you're gonna look, where can you possibly fill the thing up with hydrogen, right? And if there are no gas stations around, what are you going to do? You're, you're not going to buy a hydrogen car. But what if you could buy a hydrogen car That was also an electric vehicle. Well, now you could charge the battery at home. And then anytime you happen to be around a hydrogen fueling station, you could fill up over there. But by doing this, by basically having a hybrid battery electric vehicle and hydrogen vehicle, which was what the idea was of the Nikola truck, you basically create the demand for hydrogen fueling stations by having electric vehicles first. I thought it was absolutely brilliant because if you think about it, that's exactly, probably the best way to actually get hydrogen fueling stations built. Rather than you go build them yourself, which is what Nikola is thinking about doing now, you induce the demand by giving people battery electric vehicles that happen to also have a hydrogen uh, tank on them. And so now you have a lot more hydrogen vehicles out uh, ready to fuel up with hydrogen. That was at least the thesis, right? Obviously, they failed miserably at this. Uh, and, and I don't think anybody can go uh, as far as saying that Nickel is not a fraud or wasn't a fraud at the time. Obviously, they're trying to recover from that now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wish him the best in recovering. Trev- Trevor's gone, uh, and, uh, you know, I hope he doesn't come back. But uh, I have to say the initial idea, it made a lot of sense because how else are you going to convince people ever to consider hydrogen? I mean, even hydrogen trucking. It's like, do you really want to, you know, have to go 200 miles in one direction to get to one gas station? And what happens when that one gas station is is shut down for whatever reason? The, the reliability just isn't there. So what do you do? You just pump your truck full of diesel and go carry your loads because there's not enough hydrogen stations. It doesn't make sense to build them. I think when... Uh, Toyota was selling the hydrogen fuel cell, uh, Toyota Mirai. Uh, the closest hydrogen fueling station from my home was like 40 minutes. It's like, am I really going to go 40 minutes to fill up my car with gas? Hydrogen gas in this case. But no, of course not. Stupid. Of course not. Yesterday, also, we had this uh, high altitude uh, vehicle, apparently, that was shot down. Fox is covering this right now. Let's take a listen in for a moment.
1: Those countries would like nothing more than for us not to use those oil fields, um, and our current administration, of course, is trying to transition us into green energy, which will make us even more dependent on the Chinese. All of this so
0: complicated. Okay, and- all right. Well, that- <laughs> what? <laughs> Where, where did that idea come from? That transitioning into green energy just makes us more dependent on the Chinese. Is the argument there because of batteries? Is the argument because of, of raw materials? Now, sometimes the hyperbole that you get on, on some of these channels, I mean, this is Fox, okay? I mean, obviously you're gonna get anti-Biden hyperbole. But Biden made it very clear, and we've, we've known this. The only state that doesn't seem to understand this is California. We know that in order to transition to renewables, even BP, okay, like oil... You do not have to be pro-oil and anti-green. I think that's an important thing to remember is you look at BP and Occidental Petroleum. What are these companies doing? EV chargers, wind farms, solar farms. Occidental Petroleum is working on uh, massive carbon capture bets. Carbon capture technology probably won't be profitable for like five or six years. But the point is like, you, you, you don't have to be for one or the other. Like you can actually invest in the oil companies, which are, they're basically energy companies. They're trying substantially to become uh, a green because that that is the future. But let's be clear, you're, you're going to need oil and natural gas to get there. Uh, Biden's on the same page of that. The only people who aren't on the same page of that, I think, is the governor of California. <laughs> California's just lost their marbles, but that's redundant. But anyway... So, uh, if you hadn't heard, uh, I imagine you had, we, uh, uh, apparently we shot down some kind of cylindrical silver object that was floating around Alaska and, uh, it, it, entered our airspace and, uh, apparently the Pentagon decided we could shoot it down over here because there's nothing that it could potentially fall on. And this was also flying at around 40,000 feet, which is right around the level that, uh, jets travel, right? Uh, air traffic, uh, commercial air traffic generally travels between 30 to 35,000 feet, uh, private uh, air travel is, is usually somewhere between thirty-five, eh, probably closer to forty to forty-five thousand feet. So you kind of have like you sort of one layer above there. But uh, yeah, that that uh, that that was, that argument bothered me a little bit. Sorry, <laughs> I can't hear that. Uh, okay, so uh, then we've got what do we got? We got Adidas complaining about potentially losing five hundred billion dollars in uh, in operating losses, thanks to them not being able to sell. Kanye West's or now Ye- Yee's Yeezys. Ay, ay, ay. At the same time, as apparently Beyonce's sales for her Beyonce line are coming in weak, uh, which uh, is, is kind of surprising because, in some sense, it almost seems like the consumer is finally starting to say, you know what? Maybe we do actually need to buckle up and spend a little less money. Maybe we are walking into a little bit of a recession. Hmm. Now, despite the price wars that Under Armour is creating between Under Armour, Nike, and Lululemon, other uh, athleisure companies, there are suggestions that potentially athleisure could boom again thanks to China's reopening. Uh, I'm not as convinced on China's reopening as as, uh, a lot of folks on Wall Street are. I think it's going to take a lot more uh, time. It's going to be a lot more gradual than people expect. I think uh, one of the things to remember is you've got, you've got the people of China. I think they realize there's, there's a limit to how much they can trust their government. Here, it's sort of like, yay, we got stimmy checks, go buy everything. And it's YOLO, spend all our money. I, I think you've got a very different culture in China. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. But I think in China, you've got a lot more, uh, how should I say, uh, conservatism <laughs> with, with spending money. Uh, and that is, uh, do not rely on the government. Uh, Probably not a bad idea. You got folks like Larry Summers saying, oh, turbulent periods are coming ahead. Complacency is setting in. Not sure if we're heading to 2%. Uh, And we've got a lot to talk about regarding inflation as well today, which we'll do that. Uh, Inflation, the Fed, and the markets, we'll absolutely do that as well. Let's give a take on the Strike Foundation. Uh, Maybe I've missed this. I haven't heard anything on this. Nikola has lost all trust. Well, yeah, that's definitely true. That is absolutely true. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, when, when you roll down a truck down a hill to defraud investors, you, you basically, uh, you basically give middle, middle finger to everybody who's ever even considered investing in Nikola. Uh, I personally think they should have probably changed the name of the company after what happened just to really separate themselves from, uh, the disaster of, um, the, the fraud that happened. Oh, well. So uh, I found this video uh, I wanted to go through because I think this video is pretty incredible. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, go right into this. This is a Bloomberg video, and it was uh, I actually really enjoyed the perspective she gave yesterday, uh, and I think you will as well. So let's go into it. Here we go. Good
2: idea. Barbara Reinhardt joining us now, the head of asset allocation at Voyager Investment Management. Barbara, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Are we pushing out that recession call?
1: We are. So we think that the fall in interest rates that you've seen since October of last year, 58 basis points on the 10 year Treasury, easing of financial conditions, pushes out the recession call. We think that it's probably likely to be somewhere around mid 2024 rather than the second half of 2023. Part of it is that when a lot of people are looking for recessions, they don't tend to materialize.
3: What's so important?
0: Okay. That let's just pause there for a moment because that's really interesting. This idea that the recession could actually occur mid 2024, we just started 2023. Now, what's also interesting about that is we know based on the depth of the inverted yield curve that eventually we expect a substantial amount of cutting. Now, oftentimes that cutting doesn't actually occur until one of two things happens. Number one, the Federal Reserve destroys something and breaks something, and the Federal Reserve is forced to pivot. That's a negative pivot. Or the Federal Reserve achieves its goal, stable prices and maximum employment, and then they can reduce rates and soften sort of that that tightening uh, to bring uh, price pressures down. So is it possible that if the inverted yield curve today is signaling 500 basis points of cuts. That's 5% of cuts. Think about that for a moment. We're not even at 5% rates yet. We're expecting to go to about 5 to 5 and a quarter, but 500 basis points of cuts being signaled by the bond market within the next 2 years suggests going back to zero. But what would drive us back to zero? Maybe a stagnant economy? Is it possible that we could go to low inflation but basically be at such a low inflation again that we have to cut to prevent us from actually falling into a recession, which Barbara here thinks could actually come in the middle of 2024. It's an interesting idea because what it really tells us is that Nike swoosh recovery could take a lot longer than a lot of people expect. Now, do I think we're going to dogleg down even lower than what we saw in October? Not really. Not really. Do I think we're going to have periods of green like we had in January, followed by potentially periods of red, like, you know, the last few days of last week. Okay, we had a tiny little bit of an adjustment down. Could that continue on a bad CPI report down? Of course. Is it going to be volatile? Absolutely. But the idea that the recession might not actually really take hold until mid-24 is very interesting because if you're thinking about investing in companies, you want to think about what is that going to do to future earnings growth? Well, it's going to crimp future earnings growth for a lot of companies and potentially lead to negative earnings growth at certain companies. So uh, this is something to pay attention to. Uh, my, I'll give you sort of my thought in terms of which companies, the biggest companies that I think face the largest amount of uh, pressure when it comes to earnings growth are actually, and ironically, uh, staple companies companies like Walmart and the restaurants and uh, companies like Procter & Gamble and companies that have actually done very well in 2022, I think are likely to do very, very poorly uh, in the longer term, that is over the next year or two, because even if inflation, and and I think this is the, the funky thing that it's very easy to forget. Even if, folks, inflation is 0%, that sounds great, right? But let's say you're selling hamburgers, you know, at Red Robin Burgers for 10 bucks. And your costs for those hamburgers used to be $6. That was your cost, right? Well, you'd have a profit, a gross profit of about $4 in that case. Well, now let's say you have this massive inflation. You have 30% inflation, right? And your cost goes up to, oh, I don't know, $8 out of 10. Now all of a sudden your gross profit in this example is just $2. So your gross profit halved as inflation went up about 33%. Now, inflation might be 0% because you're going to keep that burger the same price. And, and let's assume this already considers the fact that maybe you raise the price a little bit, right? But now, nobody wants to buy your burger for more than $10. People just don't have more than $10 to spend on your burger. Well, what happens? The buffer is your profit. Your profit goes down. That's how you can actually continue to raise costs for companies. You can continue to raise producer prices for companies, but you can actually keep a lid on consumer prices because businesses don't have the ability to pass on everything anymore. In fact, there are a lot of companies that don't have the ability to pass on anything anymore. That's a big difference. Everything to anything. Massive difference. Some companies, especially pet companies, and we'll talk about this later. Are still suggesting we have a little bit more that we could pass along. But the point is, at some point, the consumers are just not going to buy anymore from you. And then what happens is you end up seeing the companies that survive be the ones that actually have the larger cushion, I like to call it, uh, that actually can see their margin compress while still being profitable at all. Imagine you ran a burger stand, and you, as well, were only able to sell your burgers for ten dollars, but You got into the business during a frothy time and you were operating these burgers with a $9 cost because you're doing some kind of fancy premium burger and your gross profit was a dollar. But now after the inflation and you're stuck at $10 with with 0% inflation on the top line, but your costs have gone up to say $11. Well, now every burger you sell, you're losing a dollar and basically your business should go bankrupt. And this is how you end up consolidating businesses into larger corporations uh, who are more efficient. And this is how companies end up dying, right? This is why Sears goes bankrupt, uh, or May- JCPenney nearly goes bankrupt, and Macy's takes over, right? Because the companies that are more efficient and were better with their advertising or the marketing or whatever, they succeed because they have the margin. Anyway, let's keep going with what this lady's saying, because this delayed recession is something very interesting to pay attention to because it, it really means, as you're investing in companies, You have to think about that margin cushion not just for the next six months but for the next two or three years let's keep going
3: here is you have the call that our listeners and viewers in america are comfortable with which is stay in america and trust american multinationals Mm -hmm. why do you push against the international angle now and what are us multinationals i'll use apple as a china proxy but there's many other names How are those American multinationals going to react in the coming three years?
1: So let's take this in two parts. You know, international developed equities, they tend to rally against the US. If you take a look over the past 15 years, there have been four times that there have been substantial outperformance of international versus the US. They tend to last on about anywhere between three to six months. The rally tends to be about 20%, and then it tends to give all of it back. It's not to say that that trend line can't be broken at some point, but it looks like it's starting to stall out. Since January 19th, the U.S. has been outperforming international developed markets. And we think that's probably the beginning of a reassertion of the U.S. outperformance. It's not a consensus call. There have been lots of fund flows going yeah. out to European equities, out to developed international, what we call IFA. Uh, we do believe that the U.S. probably has a better growth dynamic, in part because yeah, the Fed has been. One of the earlier central banks to start tightening policy, which means it's also likely to be one of the earlier central banks on exiting their tight monetary policy as well. So, taking it.
0: So, a quick interjection here. A lot, she mentioned it herself, a lot of foreign or or a lot of investment bankers and and hedge funds today are screaming about this idea that, oh, emerging market is is outperforming, emerging market is outperforming. She's making the argument, and we've been hearing this since about the end of December, she's making the argument that, yeah, that happened. But usually after that happens, you tend to have a complete reversal of that. And we're already starting to see the reversal happen. Now, I have my own thesis when it comes to emerging markets. I like exposure to emerging, emerging markets with American companies. Probably an unpopular opinion, but it's my opinion. That's what I believe in. Okay, I, I feel like I understand the culture uh, in America very, very well. And the reason that's important is because I study earnings. I study fundamentals. I study earnings calls. And I understand what I'm getting bullshitted. <laughs> that's a technical term uh, that I learned in real estate. <laughs> but anyway, so, so if I want foreign exposure, what do I like? I like Starbucks. I like Uh, to some, to a more limited degree, I like Enphase, uh, to a greater degree. I like NVIDIA. I like AMD. I like Tesla. I like Taiwan Semiconductors, even though that's a foreign company. That's an exception here. I'll put a little asterisk on there. Taiwan Semiconductors, foreign company. Uh, the, the idea though of, of getting American companies that have exposure to international and a large portion of their sales with an exposure to international, I think is a fantastic way to to play international. I mean, look at Tesla, 55% is international. Uh, You look at NVIDIA, AMD, you're looking at a 25% uh, international. Starbucks. TBD, but I, because they've just blown up their stores in China. But I think you're going to see a massive boom uh, in Starbucks China. Although I'm not investing in Starbucks yet, I'm still I'm still waiting for the right time on that one. Uh, but that, that's just my take on on that sort of international exposure. Let's keep going to uh, her commentary.
3: A step further,
1: are you pushing back against this idea that the rally in January was a fluke and has to be completely reversed? Are you actually seeing any uh, sell offs as an opportunity to buy more? Well. The rally started actually in October. So the US is up about 15%, up off of its low. International developed markets are off up about 27%. It was very oversold sentiment. You had sentiment indicators that we like to watch on a daily and weekly basis that were oversold for over a hundred days. That's only happened three other times in our data series that we go back to the mid 1990s. So you have to appreciate that. THERE WAS SO MUCH PESSIMISM, SO MUCH BAD NEWS PRICED IN, SO MUCH CONCERN THAT IT DIDN'T TAKE MUCH IN TERMS OF A FUNDAMENTAL CHANGE AT THE MARGIN FOR EQUITIES TO BE ABLE TO RALLY VIOLENTLY OFF OF THAT. IT CAN'T CONTINUE FOREVER. THE EASING IN FINANCIAL CONDITIONS, THE EASING THAT YOU'VE SEEN IN BOND YIELDS CERTAINLY HELPS FOR A WHILE, BUT YOU DO HAVE SOMEWHAT OF A TOP ON THE EQUITY MARKET IN TERMS OF MULTIPLES.
0: Uh, so keep a, a PAUSE THERE FOR A MOMENT. Financial conditions have tightened since the jobs report. She is referring to the longer run easing of financial conditions that we have seen since October. So since October, basically, simple way to put financial conditions, just think about the 10-year treasury yield. There's a reason they have it on screen there. Think about the 10-year treasury yield. The 10-year treasury was as high as 4.25, 4.3 around October, November. It's 3.7 now. That's, That's a trend down. Now, it was lower and it's recently popped back up. So just keep an eye on that that uh, fin- easing of financial conditions argument because it's actually gotten pretty dang tight again. In fact, if you look at the two-year treasure yield, it's basically at the same place we were in November. So in other words, we've just straight back to tightened as tight as we were in November. Tight, 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 tight.
1: We're using these opportunities. We reallocated um, back into the U.S. We sold some of our bond positions after they had done extremely well, knowing that it's going to be a tougher slog from here. You can easily go up until we think probably halfway through this year. Part of it is because the inflation comparables, the year-over-year comps, are very easy we see that probably starting to turn possibly in the after the June data which is released in July that's when the year over year comps on inflation which is what everybody is worried about this year become a bit more difficult but between
0: oh sorry there we go now that's also an interesting argument this idea that the easy part of inflation ends the first half of the year and earlier this week we actually talked about what i called the hump the the challenging hump Uh, And it's kind of drawn a little bit upside down, but I think it'll make sense when I describe it. So think about it as a quick disinflation first, then you've got your goods. Disinflation for goods ends by June 30th, let's say. Then you get this hump period where it's harder to get inflation down. You potentially get some volatile data. And it's not until housing inflation really starts disinflating that uh, and then and then wages continue to disinflate, wages and housing. There we go. That you actually see sort of that second wave of, house, of of disinflation, and then if by the end of all of that disinflation, you have goods competing for lower prices, housing and wages competing for lower prices, now you're potentially in the place where you can convincingly start cutting. Now, is that going to be the end of the year? Well, the bond market was pricing in a 1.73 percent in cuts at the end of the year. That has been removed. That's gone. No more cuts in 2023. It's gone. The market's already tightened to say no more cuts in 23. We're now moving that to 2024. Uh, It's interesting. One of the things that I've really learned this cycle uh, is, is, like, I think it's probably my biggest fault, uh, was a lack of patience. And I think that's still important today is even though, we could thread the needle of the soft landing, it's all going to take a lot longer. And so I think it's really important to consider that. Anyway, we'll keep going here.
1: I mean, now and then, it's probably likely
0: well, who higher She's
3: too optimistic. <laughs> I mean,
0: you know. Not
2: one of Brammo's friends.
1: Yeah. I know. actually think this is fascinating. Oh, do you? I, did, uh, I actually really, I enjoy yeah. this greatly. And I think...
2: Well, as I Bear, you enjoy this?
1: As someone who is skeptical of groupthink, <laughs> you know, there's so much groupthink now. That there's actually gonna be some big fall that I kind of like that it's Mm. it's pushing against that. I like the, you know, counter consensus. I appreciate that. I
2: appreciate that. I appreciate this from Michael Hartner this morning of Bank for America. You're gonna love this, Tom. This is great. An English strategist moved back to London with a wife from New York. After three years someone asked the wife, What's the best thing about living in London? The wife replied, Paris. And what's the best thing about stocks in 2023? <laughs> bonds. Isn't that great? The best thing about 2023 about, well, about stocks is bonds. And he puts out this chart. I think Michael Hahn is just tremendous. Michael, why don't you come on this show? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, he puts That's out this chart. Best way. start to the year for 60/40 portfolios since 1991.
1: Yeah. Is that going to continue? Well, it's coming off of an absolutely horrible year, of course, right? So there's likely to be some mean reversion. THE PROBLEM THAT YOU HAVE IN THE BOND MARKET IS that YOU STILL HAVE THE FED ACTING SOMEWHAT AGGRESSIVELY, You know, EVEN THOUGH THEY HAVE HAD SOMEWHAT OF A MORE de- DATA DEPENDENCE. IT SEEMS TO US AS THOUGH THEY ARE CONVINCED TO RAISE RATES AT LEAST TWO MORE TIMES. Uh, Over the course of this year, the bond market is pricing in a big slowdown in growth. But I would say that the inversion on the Treasury curve, while it's a fantastic predictor for recessions, it has a very long
0: lead time on doing so anywhere between. Listen to this. okay? the very long lead time on the inversion of the yield curve. How long is that lead time? This is important because everybody always talks about the inversion of the yield curve. It's always the perfect predictor of recession. But she makes a good point when <laughs> right was it was it uh the uh, q2 q3 of 2022 no the yield curve hasn't technically inverted yet then okay well how long has the yield curve been inverted well uh, less than a year <laughs> right uh somewhere around 7 8 months and so let's see what she thinks in terms of how long until we actually see that recession and it kind of reiterates that idea of what she said originally which was 2024 mid 2024 is when you can actually hit that sort of recessionary environment where now in 2024 would, oh, that's another thing too. Think about 2024, people are going to have gone through their excess savings. JP Morgan expects people will have gone through their excess savings by the third quarter of 2023. They say that poorer people have already gone through their excess savings. Uh, American Express says that higher net worth individuals are spending through this recession. Well, at some point that stops. And what if that's in 2024, not 2023? It's interesting. All right. So listen in for, uh, again, we're picking up where she says, how long until the inversion actually signals a recession? Eight
1: months and 24 months. You've been inverted on the treasury curve for about eight months at this point. I don't think that you're going to have a big buying opportunity for bonds, probably until you see you're past some of the, Uneasy or unfavorable comps in inflation, which probably go through October.
2: So you think it gets tricky around the summer? Around July time when you get the June print. David Libovitz, at the start of this hour, in that highlight reel we put out over at JP Morgan, what did he say? He said that disinflation would go on the shelf with transitory.
1: Correct. Disinflation is the new transitory. Do
2: you agree with that?
1: Yeah, look, I mean there certainly is a case to be made that a lot of the inflation that you had was transitory after all. Unfortunately, Fed Chairman Powell didn't tell us how long transitory meant. Uh, but you had, you know, a, a fifteen up leg a fifteen month up leg yeah. in inflation it's it's unlikely to be able to sustainable at this high as growth is continuing to slow
3: we love your thoughts but the reason we had you on is voya is with ing of the netherlands Mm -hmm. can you get us tickets to the vermeer show no (laughs) 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 that's that's why all
0: right now now they just go into nonsense so uh, some really interesting arguments that she makes and I, i think it's worth trying to figure out okay what does that mean so first of all the biggest argument that she makes is recession 24. The second biggest argument she makes is bonds might not actually be a buy until the summer of 2023, which is wild because everybody thought bonds were a buy, including myself, in November and October when they were a lot more, uh, you know, juicy. Uh, they, they were a screaming deal in October and November and, and they've rallied since then. So it was a good buy. But she suggests, don't worry, there'll be another buy in uh, buying opportunity in the summer. It's an interesting idea, and for her, it kind of aligns with this concept of, I don't know, the big recession isn't actually going to be here until 2024. That puts us on a pretty volatile slope for the next couple years. Uh, This isn't at all close to then a V-shaped recovery. Really, what we're doing now is we're just sort of sputtering along because we still have fuel in the tank called excess savings. But as people keep borrowing to spend through this recession, and people's excess savings are dwindling. If inflation doesn't fall quickly, then the whole disinflation argument evaporates and we're trading sideways for not, you know, just 2022, but we're actually trading sideways for 2022. Well, that was down. Maybe sideways or even down more, 23. And then maybe slowly a recovery in 2024, not 2023. That's pretty crazy. I think practically this is where I've become a a big fan of trying to uh, consider what companies do I think would have the greatest ability to, to maintain that margin cushion, uh, throughout a recession. And, uh, that's a big question because it, it all comes down to, well, how long is the recession going to last, right? If, if inflation is cured this year and we cut rates this year and we go back to normal, great, fantastic. We got to wait another year, uh, until 2024 to actually hit the recession. Well, it's gonna make it a lot, uh, you're gonna have to be a lot more choosy for which companies you're looking at uh, for a substantially longer period of time. You're going to want companies with an even bigger PP, a bigger set of pricing power uh, than than you've otherwise been looking at. So, it's a fascinating argument. Let me know what you think in the comments down below. All right, now we've got uh, someone in the comments asking me about California. Let's answer that question so why do i live in california i'll make this very simple i've talked about this many times before and it's because i'm married and that's what my wife wants okay all right yes that that is the, one of the big reasons uh but yeah a, a lot of people like kevin why, why california i mean there's there's homelessness you've got these this insane governor uh that doesn't know how to govern that has insane policies and on one hand says we're going to do these great things but then nothing ends up coming of those great things homelessness gets worse, the housing situation gets worse, everything ends up getting worse. So why live in California? Well, I personally think the only reason to live in California is the weather. Uh, and that means you really only live in Southern California coastline. That would be like Santa Barbara to San Diego. That's it. That's my only reason. This place is like 70 degrees, uh, somewhere around 80 to 90% of the year with clear blue skies. It's it's awesome. Uh, and, uh, there's really nowhere else in, in the world, uh, or in the, there is nowhere else in the United States that has this sort of weather. The only other places that have this sort of weather in the world are right around the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, you could make the argument that you could live in Northern Africa, but, uh, that might not be of interest to you. You could make the argument that you want to live around, uh, the coast of Spain or France, but then you're teaching your children a different language and you're not actually living in America anymore. You could make the argument that you could live at the, I think it's the bottom uh, of Australia or in South Africa, but then again, you're not in the United States. So if you want the United States, the only place you can get that kind of weather is is SoCal coastline. Beyond that, uh, yeah, there's probably not that much reason to be out here. I mean, you can go surfing, but I've only ever done that once. So that's my rationale. Uh Miami's wonderful. I grew up in South Florida, so I can speak uh to Miami well. Uh I grew up. I grew up uh 30 minutes from Miami. Uh Davie, Weston, Aventura, I've lived in all of these areas. Florida's beautiful because of the beach actually having warm water. So you have uh, more sun, or uh, well, you have a hotter sun. Uh, but the problem is you have a substantially uh, greater ratio of rainy days in Florida than you have in California. So even though Florida is called the sunshine state, it's clickbait. It's the, generally you have clouds on almost a daily basis. Uh, when you have a clear blue day, in my opinion, it's been more rare in Florida. Usually you get the thunderstorms around like 2 p.m. And that's obviously not every day. But consistently more rain, substantially higher humidity. The humidity is an issue. Uh, it's it's a little exhausting. You kind of like, you feel like you go shower and then you get out of your shower uh, to go to the grocery store or whatever. And you are like feeling like you're still taking a shower as you're walking around outside. It's because the humidity high. Now that's not to bag on Florida. Don't get me wrong. Florida's great. I've, I love Florida. Uh, but you know, we used to call, uh, when, when I l- grew up in Florida, we used to call it... Uh, Beach mall movies that's that's all you do Beach mall movies uh, in in Florida the the malls beautifully air conditioned every store is air conditioned the beach is freaking awesome in Florida when it's not thunderstormy uh, and then obviously movies but that was a uh, that was actually old school because now now movie theaters aren't that much of a thing anymore you used to go to the massive uh, uh, <laughs> yeah you don't actually sweat in Florida you just shower <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, I, look, uh, Puerto Rico, I've been there as well. The problem, that, you know, that, and I've considered that as well, but you all I move in with Peter Schiff. Well, I wouldn't move in with Peter Schiff, but I, you know, I like Peter. Uh, you know, I've considered moving moving to Puerto Rico as well. I mean, the tax regime over there is fantastic. I mean, you could lower your taxes. Forget about lowering your taxes, you know, 13% for state income taxes. You could lower your taxes 40%. But then, you know, you kind of get what you pay for, right? Like the 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 uh, uh, per capita income in, in Puerto Rico is extremely low. Uh, the infrastructure and, and the opportunities for schooling are, are not as great uh, in Puerto Rico. Now, you can do homeschooling, but then, you know, it all depends on ultimately what you want, right? What's Puerto Rico per capita income? Let's see here. Puerto Rico per capita income, 24K. You know, per capita income, uh, I don't know, I'll go California per capita income. What are we sitting at over here? 41,000. I mean, you're almost twice, right? What's Puerto Rico's poverty rate? Puerto Rico poverty rate. Puerto Rico's poverty rate, 40%. I live somewhere where the poverty rate's 11%. They're great places in America that have 8% poverty, 40% poverty in Puerto Rico. That's intense. It's intense. Uh, you know, so yeah. And don't get me wrong. Yeah. Pinecraft. I mean, there's some beautiful places. I mean, look at Weston Hills, uh, country club. I used to live there in, uh, in Florida, a beautiful, beautiful area. Uh, you know, but you're, you're built in the swamp. You got, uh, I mean, everybody, I remember when, when my wife Lauren came to visit me in Florida, she's like, what the hell is that around your pool? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like that, that big black thing. I go, what's with you and big black things? Uh, and she's like, the big screen, the, the, it's like a big screen thing, and I'm like, that's for all the mosquitoes and bugs, so you can go in your pool without getting eaten to death, and she's like, oh my gosh, I've never realized that you have to have those, but now I get it, because every time I come to Florida, I get eaten to death with, uh, with, with mosquitoes and, and whatever, if you've never seen those, I'll put up a picture on screen, but, um, you know, I, I, I used to have these every patio, you know, realistically in Florida, especially if you're built closer to the, uh, the inlands, you got to have these patio screens. Uh, it's that, that way you could actually enjoy, uh, the warm weather, uh, especially at night without getting destroyed. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's normal. Like these, these are just, these are just differences of different areas. Look, Florida doesn't have earthquakes. Florida's got hurricanes instead. I actually didn't really mind the hurricanes because they, you know they built the properties generally pretty well for hurricanes, uh, and you could just, uh, you know, my favorite kind of shutters obviously were the shutters that the accordion shutters, but those are expensive. You know, when I was a child and we didn't have money, uh, I had we had to uh, hang the the. I mean, I mean, most people do this, so it's not like uh, you know like that uncommon. It's not like you're poor if you have these shutters. It's just you just don't have the accordion shutters. Uh, the, uh, you, you, know, you'd have to take the, the big metal, uh, corrugated sheets of aluminum to cover up your windows. And if you didn't have gloves, your hands got shredded to crop. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, sure. Gilbert, Arizona, you know, there's some beautiful, beautiful places in Arizona. You know, you've got four months of the year where you kind of are not wanting to be there though. Right. So every, every area has got its pros and cons, obviously. Uh, you know, I mean, Uh, when I visit Arizona, it's, it's obvious that, you know, you basically can't survive without air conditioning when the temp, or you don't just don't even go outside for four months of the year because it's so hot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, Texas gets pretty hot too, (laughs) you know? Uh, so I've been to Texas, uh, quite a few times and, you know, it's, 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 look, it's all great. Like, I love all of these different places y'all mentioning, like Texas, I think there's, the food is delicious. Uh, the people are great in Texas. I love the freedoms in Texas, love the freedoms in Florida. Uh, it, it's, it's fantastic. But if you kind of look at sort of like a weather chart, I think the way to look at what what uh, the area is that I'm living in is, uh, well, let me put it this way. Most areas when it comes to weather, they look like a bell curve, right? They have this sort of weather where, uh, and, and some areas it, it, where in colder areas, you could actually see the bell curve kind of look like this. And, and this is basically saying, like, you know, it gets very, very cold uh, or it gets very, very hot, uh, which would be the top over here. Whereas the area that I live in, the the curve of, of weather kind of looks like that. It's, like, super, super moderate. It's, like, a line through the middle. And and your range is, like, 68 to 72 on average year-round. It's insane. So, you know, I, I we have decided that we're willing to pay for that. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's just the reality of, of the decision we've made. We've decided that we're willing to pay an extra 13% and, uh, and, and, and live in the climate that we want to live in. I get to, you know, go run every day outside pretty much, uh, because, uh, it basically never rains here. Uh, it, 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 it you know, sometimes it does, obviously, uh, when we, you know, that's when the Californians are always like, well, we need the rain, you know, but, uh, you know, from a selfish point of view, I kind of like that it doesn't rain all the time, <laughs> that it barely rains and that it's mostly just sunny year round. So, uh, you know, I've, I've come to love it and I've traveled to a lot of places, you know, I, the northern coast, Europe, you know, <laughs> Puerto Rico. I've, I've, I've been to a, a, a lot of wonderful places and these are great places I will go to on a vacation. Maybe one day when I actually go vac- vacation. <laughs> so... My take on why I live in California and why I'm, and, and don't get me wrong, like, yes, the government sucks. The governor is an idiot and, and all he's trying to do is set himself up to run for president. You know, it, 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 it's, it, it's basically like the politics have been corrupted. Don't get me wrong. There's so many reasons to hate on California, but if you think about it, like how much does the government really bother you on a daily basis? Like very little. <laughs> that's that's the other thing I think you know people are like oh but the politics but the politics it's like politics don't bother me on a daily basis uh, then then you look at uh, it's it's like oh but it's so hard to build in California I go guess what I don't do in California I don't build <laughs> just don't build then just don't do things where you're inviting the government into your life <laughs> you know just uh, just follow the rules and and uh, just don't build in California then okay and you know what one of the beautiful things too is uh, because it's so the government is so stupid and doesn't let you build housing in California. Guess where there's one place where you can invest in America where you could pretty much guarantee the government won't, build, won't allow more homes to be built, which basically increases the value of existing houses. California. <laughs> so ironically, investing in California, you actually have the government giving you this guarantee that they're going to keep your housing prices high and the housing prices are going to continue to get higher because they don't build, because they're morons. <laughs> That's just fantastic though, if you own real estate, (laughs) so, uh, you know, that's not good for people who want to be able to afford housing. That's terrible for them. And I feel bad for that. But like, if you're like, where in the United States do I want to buy housing and guarantee that the government will basically make it near impossible to add to the housing stock? California, (laughs) you know, so it's like when, when there's a downside, you kind of have to look at the upside too. People are always like, but it's so hard to build in California. I go, I know, and I love it. So I just don't build, (laughs) you know, so don't build. It's, uh, it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's like the perspective of how to look at it. Right. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, all right. We've got to, we've got to go back to talking about, uh, markets and, and inflation and, and, uh, uh, I don't know. What do we want to talk about next? Oh, oh we got to talk about the waitings. Yeah, the CPI weightings. A lot of folks have been asking me about um, uh, CPI waitings. What's up, Christina? Thanks so much, uh, Armando, <laughs> for being here almost every day. Mm-hmm. Government impacts our lives daily. Taxes, crime, schools. See, but I don't have those issues, really. You know, I mean, and knock on wood, I'm fortunate about that, but our crime is super low where I live uh, uh you yeah, know our schools are great uh you know the weather's all i mean we we we, we just feel blessed so we're we're happy to pay what we're paying you know like if crime all of a sudden got really bad and and other issues started falling apart yeah then may, then maybe we'd want to move right uh canceled rent and no they haven't <laughs> it's just not true uh so california has horrible high density housing single family or over a million dollars in good city suburbs yeah Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So, uh, let's talk about those weightings. Somebody was asking me about weightings here earlier. Uh, I'll I'll talk about that. Uh, But first, let's take a sip of this. uh, Looks like we got some anti-venom today. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Who played RuneScape? Did anyone play RuneScape? Leave me a comment down below. (laughs) All right. So, the CPI ratings all right let's see cpi weightings we've got to talk about a few different things first we've got to understand cpi weightings we're going to understand what actually happens when energy shocks affect inflation which is actually what we're expecting to happen on tuesday an energy shock of inflation what does the federal reserve think about that and What's actually happening with companies passing on pricing increases? Who is left that is passing on pricing increases? And are there some companies that actually are? Could those potentially be a red flag? Well, let's get started first by, as I said, looking at the CPI weighting changes. Now, a lot of people have been freaking out about these weighting changes coming. We just got the data on how the weights are actually going to change and how those would have affected last year's data if if we even consider them as applying to last year, which they don't. So looking at last year's data doesn't even really matter because last year's data had the weights that it had. Now we're looking at this year and we're going to look at the weights that this year has. And this is how the weightings have changed. So what you're going to see on the bottom is you're going to see relative importance. So the more to the left they are, the less important they are. Uh, and then uh, to the uh, right, uh, we are going to, uh, or and then up or down above the line, we'll see, okay, well, have they been increased in importance or decreased in importance? And what we find over here is that education and communications have been slightly increased uh, in uh, in importance, apparel slightly increased in importance, recreation slightly increased. What's actually gone down has been medical care, transportation, other goods and services, and food and beverages, which is actually really interesting because food and beverages, that's where you've got some leftover inflation, and you're seeing that get weighted down, but you're also seeing housing get weighted up. Now, that's really interesting that housing is getting weighted up because housing in total is going from a 42.4% weight To 44.4% weight. Now that is bad if you look at last year. If you look at last year, it actually makes inflation somewhat end the year worse. Here's kind of graphically what that looks like. You can see over here with the new changes, inflation ended higher. That blue line is with the new revisions uh, and the dotted line is before revisions, but the blue line ended higher. That's because housing inflation actually popped off more at the end of the year uh, than earlier in the year. Housing inflation has still been rising, and now housing is becoming more important. But what's fascinating about that is if we go to my thesis, my, my thesis of the hump of inflation, which is that the first phase, phase of inflation is we have goods disinflation. Uh, then by around June 30th, we hit the end of goods inflation, and we start getting harder CPI comps which basically means it's harder to show that we've had a larger decrease uh, over last year, Uh, it, it might take a moment before we actually start seeing that housing and wage disinflation come towards the end of the year. But when we actually start seeing that housing disinflation, we really think that we're going to see inflation plummet. Now, housing disinflation specifically comes from a measure known as owner's equivalent rents. And we expect owner's equivalent rents to really plummet. I mean, substantially plummet. And that's because CPI reads are really delayed when it comes to owner's equivalent rents. Uh, CPI reads, if you look on screen now here, show increasing CPI rent, even though actual new tenant rents are trending substantially down. Now, we are just about to hit the crossover point where we should start seeing CPI rent start falling, but most estimators suggest we won't actually start seeing CPI rent realize that actual rents are coming down until potentially the beginning of Q3. And that's because rents skyrocketed so much higher than CPI rent that you're actually still playing the six to 12 month lagged catch up, where in a weird way, CPI rents are still going up because they're chasing how high rents have gone, even though rents are already on this downslope. I think the easiest analogy for this is think about it kind of like a roller coaster. CPI rent is going, right? Going up the sort of chain lift of the, uh, of the uh, uh, roller coaster. But everybody on the uh, uh, r- actual new rents is already like in the trough. Everybody's already kind of like, wee! Like, or maybe not even at the trough. You're just on the downslope. So you're kind of like that next car on the roller coaster. You're that CPI rent where you're kind of like, well, we're still going tick, 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 tick. We expect the whee for CPI inflation to come. But because we're still going tick, 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 for, for rental inflation and CPI, it actually means we're still getting higher inflation reads, even though we know the whee is coming. So it's it's like kind of weird and kind of broken. And then some people are like, well, what if what if the we doesn't happen because you know we get derailed off the tracks or something, and and then obviously we have bigger problems then. Nobody wants to fall off the roller coaster because they, you know then, then you've got real big issues. But wildly or widely, the Federal Reserve and institutions believe that housing inflation is actually going to plummet uh, in 2023. Now, what's remarkable about that is if these CPI weights are actually giving more weight. To housing in 2023, then it actually means we probably will see even more disinflation than we would have had if it weren't for these weighting changes. Now, why are these weights being changed? Well, there are two ways you can think about why the weights are being changed. One way is you put the tinfoil hat on and you go, they're trying to rig it to make Joe Biden look good before the election. Okay, that's one thesis. The other thesis is The Bureau of Labor Statistics looks and says, "Okay, based on where prices are today, how much of the average consumer spending goes to housing? Well, we think more of the average consumer spending is going to housing this year than in previous years. And honestly, that's probably true. Uh, They also think that people are potentially going to spend less money on maybe going out uh, and spending money at restaurants and dining. So they're lowering the relative weight of food and beverages. That doesn't mean you eat or drink less. Uh, It just means that you might be spending less on that relative to housing because housing costs have gone up so much. So that's why they make these weighting adjustments. Really, in the grand scheme of things, looking back to how these new weights affected inflation last year doesn't matter because that's already in the books. So there were a lot of... uh, articles circulating on how inflation was higher last year because of these changes in weights. It doesn't matter. The weights matter going forward, not going back. Now, there are obviously issues, uh, other issues that we have to talk about regarding inflation, and that is uh, the potential that inflation is still being is still relatively sticky. Now, one of the ways that we could potentially see that inflation might be sticky is by looking at companies that are still raising prices. So you've got this. Uh, this uh, you had a course member who actually reached out, sent me an email of uh, their pet stores. They operate seven pet stores in, in, in uh, uh, you know, one part of the country. Just to keep it private, I won't mention where. Uh, and uh, they're they're talking about how all of their food costs are increasing, and this is very interesting because. When you look at the list of, and then they also anecdotally say that, uh, you know, they're even seeing the cost of toys increase, and they expect to pass on some of these these price increases. And so this is this anecdotal argument, and also with their evidence, that, that prices are going up for foods. Now, interestingly, you could actually look at a company like Tyson Foods, and you can also see that prices are going up uh, for, uh, a certain like meats, fish is getting more expensive, meats are getting more expensive, uh, uh, beef is getting more expensive. And one of the reasons you're seeing this sort of increase is because, uh, cattle, uh, has been, uh, less, uh, available. And when there's lower supply, the cost of meat goes up, but it's not as simple as saying, okay, cost of meat's going up. Uh, therefore everything's going to get priced in, uh, and you're going to see food costs go up. What you actually end up happening is you get to a limit where at some point, the consumer will no longer pay the higher prices. And so to try to corroborate what the individual was saying who sent me this evidence that that food prices were still going up at pet stores and potentially toy prices as well, is I looked at the Chewy earnings call. So we know Tyson, I'll give you the bottom line on that. We know Tyson saying, yeah, look, our food prices, our input costs are going up. Those are producer prices. Our producer prices are going up for meats. But get, what did Tyson tell us? Tyson's like, the problem is we can't raise prices anymore because people aren't buying meats as much as they were. Now, you might think that's crazy. Like, how are people buying less chicken and beef? Because it's a food. Like, that should be an inelastic good, right? Wrong. When food or or prices for meats go up, people just go buy something else. They go buy eggs. Price of eggs goes up, which they have substantially. Okay, then you go buy rice and beans. Like, you have the ability to choose different uh, sources of calories. You don't have to buy the expensive stuff anymore. So, what did Tyson Foods complain about, just to finish the argument on Tyson? Well, Tyson Foods, like, dude, we are having a problem. Our margins are getting squeezed substantially. And uh, this is why they're warning, here it is on screen, they're warning about how Q2 is going to be some seasonally softer, variable pricing models lag. We caught up with pricing as much as we could, basically. Uh, and they had somewhat of a confusing earnings call, but basically Reuters had a very good summary of it. They're like, look, they took a hit because there was weakening demand for chicken. And, uh, and basically their margins are getting hit. And it, they don't think it actually makes sense to keep investing in even more production because people are just demanding less. And so it's kind of like, do they want to go through the CapEx? No. So they're kind of between a rock and a hard place as really a commodity supplier, right? They're supplying a commodity. Chicken is mostly a commodity. Now, they try to argue that they have pricing power on some of their branded products, but what is Tyson seeing? Margins getting smashed. And when margins are getting smashed, you really don't have much pricing power. And to the point where you start potentially losing money because your margins are getting smashed, You're in a bad situation. So what does Chewy tell us? Well, Chewy was an interesting earnings call because Chewy says, look, we're still able to pass on price increases. And I thought that was very interesting and actually somewhat concerning. Now, Chewy mentioned this as of the earnings call of December 8th, uh, 2022. Now, keep in mind, I don't want to be the guy who comes up with a narrative and then only feeds you information for that narrative. I am going to give you red flags. And I'm going to give you counter arguments to what I believe, right? I believe we are going to see massive disinflation over time. However, there are still embers. And Chewy actually gives us an ember. Chewy talks about how Uh, at least in the initial part of their report, they talk about how they're still able to pass on price increases and that they have strong pricing environment. Uh, And uh, we believe that, you know, that's how the pricing environment looks great at the end of Q4 going into the first part of, of 2023. So pet suppliers still passing on these price hikes. But what was fascinating was this, and I'll sum it up here. They basically talk about how we're no longer going to pass on multiple rounds of increases. We're going to do maybe one more set of price increases, and by the second half of the year, we're done. We can't pass on any more price increases. And that's partly because we think if we keep passing on prices, we're going to see that drop off in demand. But on top of that, listen to this one. I never thought of this one before, but they say pet household formation is flat or negative. Yeah, listen to that. Pet household formation is falling, okay? When people, and you have to think about this, it's like there are a certain amount of animals. Animals have a choice. Well, they don't have a choice, but but people with animals have a choice. But animals either end up uh, like basically in a shelter or they end up uh, in in uh, a poor household, which will put in the same bucket as a shelter. I know that sounds harsh, okay? A, a poor household can be loving as well. But I'm making a, a, a point here, is that a shelter is gonna feed uh, the, the, the kibbles, the, the hard food, right? The dry goods, we'll call it dry food for the animals. So a shelter gives dry food for the animals and a poor household is gonna provide dry goods for the, the food to eat. A wealthier household is going to provide, you know, new toys and and the fancy like the salmon meals and the chicken meals that come in the cans for like the cats and the dogs, right? They're going to spend money on all the premium food rather than basically the basic food. And so if you create less new households, that means you potentially start seeing people who are spending a lot of money on their pets spend less. So you potentially start moving wealthier households to the style of spending of poorer households. But if you're also creating less new households in the get-go, well, who's most likely to spend on their pets like crazy? Well, the newer households. And then eventually people are like, damn, we're spending way too much money on the animals. We got to start spending like like the poorer households, right? And and so that's where lower pet household formation actually reduces uh, the the demand for premium foods for animals. So this is where Chewy, even Chewy is telling us, yes, look, We are going to be able to, in 2022, we were able to do, let's just say, four price hikes. In 2023, we think we're going to be able to divide the year in half and we'll be able to do one price hike in the first half and zero price hikes in the second half. So you're even seeing where the embers are, the disinflation charted. And this is why I really believe that that disinflation is coming because even where the embers are, you're seeing that disinflation come. Now, one of the very few places you're still seeing, like, hot inflationary embers is aerospace. Yesterday in the course member livestream, we were looking at the uh, GE earnings release, uh, and as well as the GE earnings call, and that is one place you're definitely still seeing inflation. And I can tell you, as a plane owner, the shortages that still exist in the plane industry suck ass. They're really, really bad. Uh, that's okay. Should be flying again next week. Uh, I got a new windshield put in. Uh, my plane got upgraded. Let's go. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, so there are still embers in the economy, right? But we want to pay attention to are those embers going away or are they still burning stronger? Yesterday, we were talking about how we're starting to see this massive wage disinflation happen, right? Uh, and uh, Uber, 36% more drivers. Lyft extreme surge of new drivers. As you increase the labor supply, you decrease the pressure on wages. So everything's pointing to disinflation. The question now is how long is that disinflation going to take, right? And now this is interesting because Nick T, he shared a piece on the impact of energy hikes on inflation. And he uh, basically shared this piece, which when he shares a piece, we think it's basically the Fed giving it to him and and, and sharing it. And so he shared this research about the inflationary impact of energy prices on longer-term inflation. And basically, they make the argument that contrary to popular belief, the surge of inflation in 21 and 22 was not primarily caused by energy prices. And they say in the piece that COVID shattered these popular beliefs that even though it feels so similar to the energy shock of what we saw in the 1970s inflation ultimately is driven by people's ability to spend money not by energy prices and they talk about how yes eventually higher energy prices could get passed on uh, through the prices of other goods and services but the limit the ceiling on those prices is ultimately what people are able to pay. And as a result of their modeling, and this is just, you know, one one study here uh, that's shared by the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas uh, and Mickey T, they suggest that one-time unexpected increases in gasoline prices do sharply increase headline CPI, but that impact only persists for about two months before having an indistinguishable from zero impact on future inflation. In other words, there's no evidence that persistent inflation is caused because of a gas or energy price shock. That basically, you end up only having the energy price shock to the extent that energy prices keep rising. But as soon as energy prices fall, that longer term inflation impact doesn't exist. You go right back to sort of that disinflation environment. That's interesting. But what's more interesting is that they're sharing this piece right before a CPI read that we think is going to be hot because of energy prices. Energy prices went up over the last 30 days, and we think the CPI read on Tuesday is gonna be hot. Uh, so, you know, this is this is kind of interesting, right? Uh, so, now, the reason this is so important is because everybody, and I, I hear this all of the time, and I just, I, I ideally wanna to try to put it to rest just by making it really, really simple. People are like, Kevin, but Kevin, prices went up so much how are we going to get them to go down again when inflation 6%? That is not the question. The question is not, how are we going to get prices down? That's what's so important to remember about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve does not care that your life just got more expensive. Okay, I should not say that because I, I do believe that at the heart of it, people like Jerome Powell probably care about you. Uh, but, but let's be real. As an institution... The Federal Reserve does not care that things are expensive. They care that things are stable. And as long as prices are stable, even if they are stable high, they're good. They've done their job. So prices do not have to come down. And I think that's the important thing to consider is fine. Prices don't have to come down. So what does that mean? Well, that means people are going to have less money to spend on stuff, which means you really want to double down on looking for companies that have a lot of pricing power, Because like Tim Cook says, people will stretch to buy their iPhone. But maybe that means they're not going to the Cheesecake Factory as much anymore. And the wealthy people, instead of dining at the Cheesecake Factory, are going to Chipotle. And the people who used to go to Chipotle that are poor are like, shit, I can't go to Chipotle anymore because it's too damn expensive. I'll just eat at home, right? So like, you you do get that sort of trade-off. That happens. And that's the question. That's the big question. Is how does the recession impact company earnings? But the inflation shock, should go away and so far every leading indicator is suggesting it will go away with the exception of aerospace travel and 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 uh, air, air traffic really being an impactor there and one of the reasons you have that is because the airline industry is still smaller today than it was in 2019 which is just insane like the pandemic really ruined uh, uh, you know what what um, what you have in aerospace and that's why you have this insane inflation in, in uh, aerospace. But, uh, but in general, everything will go down, right? Like like prices eventually come down. Now it takes a long time. You know, a lot of people like Kevin, but egg prices. Yeah, egg prices have started coming down. But one of the things that's interesting is you can also raise more chickens. But again, that takes time, right? That's the, pro- that's the real question is how long is it going to take? So it takes time to increase chicken production. But then again, remember, eggs are not an inelastic good. You can eat things that don't include eggs. I mean, vegans survive. Right, so like you can get off of eggs, uh, so so that, that is something to consider. Generally, things that are considered purely inelastic, uh, which means people must buy it no matter what the price is. It's a vertical supply curve, right, or, or a demand curve. Like you you will you will buy it no matter what the price is. Your demand is hundred percent no matter what the price is. Uh, is like insulin, right? That's an example of, of something where you have purely inelastic demand. But, uh, you know, you, you don't want huevos anymore because they're really expensive. You go eat rice, uh, right? It, it, it's, it's simple. Um, and, and the economy broadly makes that decision. You know, you might say, I don't care if the eggs are a dollar more. I'm going to keep having eggs because you like eggs in your face or something. I don't know uh, what, what you're into. You can do whatever you want. But, uh, you, you know, that, that doesn't mean broadly as an economy. The economy won't adjust uh, to, to fewer eggs, so that that can absolutely happen, and, and that ends up that's that's just the way the world works. I mean, when rice gets expensive, people go to potatoes, right? When potatoes get expensive, people go to wheat. When, pe- when wheat goes expensive, you go to the other side of the triangle. You go back to rice. <laughs> you know, uh, it's uh, it's actually a fantastic uh, uh, way the 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 world market works. Of course, then then you have people that are super anti-capitalism and and uh, and are like, no, we should just have everything handed to us, and we should have pure socialism. Uh, like there's this uh, this guy drives me nuts. Uh, I actually called him a pansy on Twitter. Uh, take a look, take a listen to this guy. Okay, this this was just like disgusting. All right, ready for this? Hold hold on a sec. Let's listen to this pansy. Uh, stand by, stand by for uh, a disgusting video. Stand by as Morgan Freeman asks you to stand by. Here we go.
3: It's sick and twisted. That I have to work just to survive, just to live my life for basic ass necessities. Like, I don't want to work until the day I die just to eat shit and sleep. Basic human necessities, it shouldn't be controversial. Fucking free housing, free healthcare shouldn't be a goddamn pipe dream. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, you should be doing this or that. No. Like, what if I don't want to be rich? What if I want to achieve shit? I still have to work till the day I fucking die just to live? Just to survive? People give up their entire lives just to retire at the ripe age of 60-whatever. For what? To get paid dirt even then? People destroy their bodies physically and mentally just to feed into a capitalistic system that does not give a shit about you. God didn't make me the smartest angel, but I know that shit needs to change. And I don't want to be told that I'm ungrateful, that I should be fucking happy to have a job where it's taking up 40 hours of my goddamn week. You know, I want to spend time with my family. I want to do shit that is fulfilling to me. But all that shit like requires so much privilege, requires so much wealth, and it's just fucking messed up. Like, fucking universal healthcare, like, universal, like, basic income, or whatever, like, it, it needs to happen now. Like, these fuckers got us to the moon, like, y'all can fucking figure this shit out. <laughs> but, you know, the rich just, the rich just wants to get richer. They just want to keep exploiting marginalized people. They don't want to fucking give up their wealth. And fucking help others. And for the 1%, like, it'll it'll never be enough. Like, when will it be enough? Like, I don't need a goddamn mansion or to be a billionaire. Like, for fucking what, man? (laughs) So that I can exploit others and take away from others? Like, fuck no. All the billionaires can rot.
0: Wow, that was extremely discouraging. I have lost a lot of faith in the new generation of humanity. I'm pretty disgusted to see people suggest that they deserve to live for free when 40% of the world lives on less than a dollar per day. Billions of people in the world work their ass off for less than a dollar per day a day working in factories and in slum to work to survive and this person wants free everything free food free housing so he could sit on his ass and as he said spend time with his family because he doesn't want to put in 40 hours a week of work you realize the 40 hour work week is already very good now some people might take issue with that but let's be real If you're awake for 112 hours a week that's about 16 hours that gives you a full eight hours of sleep. If you're awake for 112 hours you've got a lot of time to spend with your family. In fact you have 72 hours to spend with your family and to do whatever you want. Even if you take out maybe 12 hours a week of commuting, which is generous, you have 60 hours to do whatever you want. You have 50% more time to do whatever you want and still have a full-time job earning a fantastic living in America relative to the billions of people who survive on a dollar a day or struggle to survive on a dollar a day. Imagine if people like this existed 100,000 years ago uh, or even 10,000 years ago in the ages of the Neanderthals. You know what? I shouldn't have to work for my food. I'm just gonna sit in this cave. Well, guess what happens to you, you dumb nut? You die. Now think about this. Think about all of the hardworking people who even live in relatively developed countries. I'm not even talking about the billions of people who live on a dollar or less than a dollar a day. I'm now talking about normal people who work 40 plus hours a week and they try to live normal, developed lives in a country like Turkey. Guess what? There's so little capability to keep people from dying in an earthquake because we need people to work more, not less. We need a government that is actually willing to require proper earthquake standards so people don't die in earthquakes. This should be basic. But guess what? The government doesn't have enough money to do it. There's not enough money to go around to make it so that people who even work full-time lives and try to live actual lives, there's not even enough money for them to not get killed in an earthquake. And here you want a free home. It's, it's like such a disgusting comparison to what's actually happening in the world. And this idea that, oh, well, rich capitalists, you know, just want to exploit people. Rich capitalists and the capitalistic system is designed to make sure that our livelihoods get better. The company that makes structural steel and hardware to actually prevent people from dying in an earthquake innovates and provides products and goods and services to prevent people from dying in an earthquake because of capitalism. Not because Xi Jinping said somebody make a better bolt and we're gonna give it away for free to everyone. That's not how you innovate. That's not how you actually end up saving lives. More people don't die because of the innovations that are created today in our society because of capitalism. Capitalism makes the world function better. Is it perfect? No. There's a lot of work to do. There are a lot of people that don't have iPhones to record TikToks like this douchebag. There are a lot of broke people who are starving. That's scary. And so what can make people starve less? Capitalism. So we can innovate and figure out how can we maybe vertically farm? How can we have a a a sustainable energy future to actually make it so that power is on for people so they can go to work? Imagine trying to go to work, and you actually go try to go to work, but the power goes off every hour because you're in a country that can't even keep the power on. And I'm not talking about California, which also has problems keeping its power on because it's trying to become so socialized. But what ends up happening when you have losers like this spreading this message that, oh, we need UBI, you know, I shouldn't have to work 40 hours a week. What you do is you make some percentage of America stupider and even lazier. And it's disgusting because what we actually need is more motivated people working harder so that way we can make the world a better place for the people who don't yet have the opportunity. See, this person doesn't even realize he has the opportunity to go make a real difference in the world. Now, maybe he doesn't want to, but at least he has the opportunity to do so. The power grid's stable, you got a phone, you got a home, and you're not starving. There are billions of people who would, would, would do anything, give anything they have to live in America. And then you have people like this. It's so disgusting. It's so disgusting, this, this hate for a capitalistic system that, quote, doesn't give an S about you. It's nonsense. Capitalism cares. <clears throat> and I can make that very simple for you. You know why I know capitalism cares? Because capitalism revolves around dollars, around money. And guess what? If capitalism can make something more inexpensive and accessible to people, guess what? The person who does that, who actually provides disinflation, makes more money. And so what do you have? You have a country that's motivated to provide either better value, so innovative products, or better products or even equal products at a lower cost. So capitalism actually makes it more accessible for people to live a safe and quality life. Look at a household 50 years ago, a household maybe, if they were lucky, had one TV and one car. Now, American households in poverty have two to three cars, four to five TVs, everyone's got a laptop. You wanna learn how to type? You can do it for free on the internet. You wanna take MIT classes? You can get those for free on the internet. Capitalism is phenomenal. Are there problems? Absolutely. But this scumbag is not the solution. exhausting. All right, next, now we got to talk about, uh, let's see, so that's, uh, now we have, uh, we've got some more, oh, we got to talk housing next, but we'll answer a few comments here first, and then we'll talk housing next. Uh, All right, Uh, oh, I'm out of coffee, how disappointing. All right, so uh, next we, (laughs) that person is the downfall of America, oh my God. Uh, well, All right, let's see here. But P- never put him on so your yeah, CNN. No kidding. That person deserves no airtime. I agree. Uh, I agree. All right, next up, we must look at housing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, this is pretty crazy, and also kind of scary. Uh, Keep in mind, you can follow me on Twitter to see uh, more of these things. So we're going to talk about housing in a moment. Uh, Do keep in mind that now uh, Ross Gerber is also wanting to run for the board of Tesla. Uh, Obviously, y'all know uh, Ross has been on the channel many times before. Some people don't like Ross. I think a lot of people love Ross. I think Ross is great. He's got a phenomenal heart. He's a great guy. So shout out to, to Ross for making the run. Uh, you've also got uh, this guy, a uh, car dealership guy again. I've mentioned him a few times. One of the things that's very interesting about this is he talks about basically cars getting so unaffordable that what's happening is people are basically uh, canceling their car insurance the day after they buy a car because you, you, when you buy a car, you need proof of insurance because it's not legal to drive a car without insurance but it's gotten so expensive to be insured that, uh, and and to have a car, that people end up canceling their insurance. How crazy is that? Save on insurance just to be able to afford. It's insane. Absolutely insane. Uh, You know, it's, it's, uh, it's wild. Somebody here says, how does capitalism work for the poorest states? They're dominated by Republican states. These states suck our federal dollars. You know, I, I think the, um, the issue is more wh- where is the greatest innovation, right? And, and in, in, in some of our poorest states in, in the United States, you don't actually have a lot of innovation. So you don't actually have uh, the real wealth draws, right? Instead, you have potentially more retirees who are essentially, well, you know, living off of Social Security or, or pensions or such. And you're not actually providing value to society anymore. The point of capitalism is that if everybody provides value to society, well, first of all, the people who provide the most value generally get the most, but then they're also, but then that, like that's actually the driver, right? The point of capitalism is if you provide more, you get more. It's actually a very simple concept. The more you provide to other people, the more you get. That's the, that's the thesis. And so what's the motivator? Well, the motivator is to get people to provide more value. And if you're a Yomi, somebody who's like, you owe me a free house or whatever, and you don't provide value to society, guess what? You get less. <laughs> surprisingly simple. All right. So, uh, let's get into this, this housing piece. You don't really have to get into the whole Republican versus Dem thing right now. All right. So the housing piece was remarkable. Now, uh, I've been I've been for a while talking about uh, this this the housing issues. I'm not a big fan of this argument that oh housing's going to uh, collapse like 2008. Uh, that I definitely don't believe. but there are some concerns and some red flags that came up. All right, so da, 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 da. let's go ahead and jump on over to this one. Let's jump on into housing. All right. Housing. We've got a disaster reported on Twitter. And while we cannot yet independently verify this, it is a red flag that has a logical basis. And it's very fascinating. So here's an individual called Jacob at Raleigh Fam. Jacob says the following. I'm a new Home sales rep. Okay, let me just explain that really quick because a lot of people might not understand what that means. It means you're a real estate agent who stands at the open house for a home builder and you try to sell new homes. Okay, so he's a real estate agent who's trying to sell new homes. Okay, all right. For a top five American builder, new home sale reps are a small community. In other words, they all talk to each other. Oh, he literally says that. We all talk to each other. (laughs) uh, builders are inflating the numbers. Uh Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Builder stocks and builder earnings calls have actually been very good. They've been bragging about how things are getting better in December and January and things are looking up and up. Hmm. But wait a minute. Builders are inflating the numbers, keeping bad contracts and bad loans on the books to prevent showing cancellations. Uh Uh-oh. So what do we have over here? He gives us a chart that shows how uh, cancellations for companies are up substantially over double for Meritage Homes. You've got Pulte Home Group over here, double DR Horton. You've got a uh, uh, double, uh, you've got cancellation rates basically skyrocketing. And uh, you also have a substantial decline in net new orders. This we've actually seen in in publicly available statistics as well. We know that cancellation rates have skyrocketed and we know that net new orders have fallen. We already know that. So that's actually not a secret. So statistically, we already know that some of that data is happening. But what's really alarming is this idea that builders are potentially inflating the numbers. So what rationale does he give for inflating the numbers and how can we potentially deduce truth from that? Well, first of all, uh, what else does he say? He says here, unfortunately, it's going to get bad. Okay, well, that's anecdotal. Let's get to where some more of the insight is. For example, in the past, we would immediately cancel or not even write a contract slash build if we found you weren't qualified. Over the last three months, 90% of what we are forced to write are unqualified contracts because the qualified buyers are gone. These unqualified buyers won't be able to close. So what we're seeing is all the new home sales are worthless, but we have a gun to our head that if we don't hit our quota of three to six homes sold a month, we will be laid off or terminated. So we have to write the contracts, but they won't close. The base prices are too high, but we can't drop the base price because the backlog under contract won't appraise. So instead, we are doing incentives. But incentives stopped working months ago. So builders are stuck. If we drop prices, the already bad contracts will be even more bad. Hmm. Okay, so let me explain this, because this is very tricky if you're not from the real estate world. And I'll try to explain the potential impact of this, because it is concerning. Especially since, when you look at companies like Lennar, the darn stocks are, have actually recovered substantially from their loans or for, from their lows last year. In fact, here, just go to Google really quick, type in Lennar stock, and look at this sucker over the last year. It's up 11% a year ago from a year ago. You look at the last five-year chart. The sucker had a dip and a low in June, but it's recovered 57% from June. How does that potentially make sense when housing prices haven't even really shown their year-over-year fall yet? (laughs) Ha, maybe it's the perfect short opportunity. Uh, We'll be talking about that a lot more, by the way, in our trading challenge that we've got coming up. We're we're officially launching the uh, team trading challenge for course members in the Stocks and Psychology Money Group. Remember, of course, which you can get lifetime access to by the link down below. But here is how housing works uh, when it comes to new construction builds. So let's say you have a buyer who comes in on uh, today, okay? So today is February 11th, and they're like, hey, I want to buy lot number 152. So you're going to buy lot 152, and you're going to go under contract for, let's say, $500,000. But in order to be convinced to go under contract for $500,000, you're like, well, I want $20,000 of incentives, Now that'll buy you maybe new flooring and it'll cost the builder $7,000 to do the flooring. So the builder actually props up their margins by giving you this uh, $20,000 incentive because they're they're giving you $20,000 of apparent value, uh, which is what you think you're getting, but you're really only getting $7,000 of value. But that's how builders make money. They want you to buy upgrades through the builder. That's where they make a lot of money. But builders are also making a lot of money because guess what? The lot they built this property on, they built number 152, guess when that lot was probably purchased, okay? And this this gets really scary. Are you ready for this? Guess when the lot was probably purchased for the house number 152 that's selling today? 2019 or 2020. Guess what real estate prices were in 2020, uh, 2019 and 2020? Much lower than they are today, which why is that really interesting? Well, it means that the builder margins are still today being propped up by low lot sales from 2019 and 2020. Well, lot sales in 2021 and 23 and 22 are much more expensive, specifically 2021, uh, which is what we're going to see next. Like the 2021 lot sales, we'll actually start seeing those come up in 23 and 24 here, right? The 2021 lot sales are going to be extremely expensive relative uh, to what home prices are likely to be when they actually start falling more in 23 and 24 and through the rest of really this year, because we're in 2023. So this, the lot prices are way higher now for the homes that are coming up. But the homes that are selling today are still selling with low lot prices. So it artificially makes the home builder profits look high right now. So the home builder profits look high right now because of a low base cost from low lot values. But when those higher lot values come in, you're going to have a big oopsie doopsies and those higher lot values will probably start coming in, uh, later in 2023. So dangers for, for housing. Well, for builders, it's going to be higher lot values, uh, as, uh, you know, an input cost for builders at the end of 2023 plus, right? Getting rid of that cheaper previous lot inventory. That is going to be a drag on the home builders towards the end of 2023. So, keep that in mind, okay? Now, while you keep that in mind, let's go back to what this guy on the Twitter thing said, basically about, we'll use our example here, lot 152. What is a builder backlog? Well, when somebody says we have a builder backlog that we want to make sure can appraise, What they're actually talking about is under contract deals. So the loser who bought property, uh, let's say one fifty, I know, let's say one forty nine. Okay. So the loser who bought property one forty nine for five hundred thousand dollars as well, uh, January, let's say twenty eighth, their appraisal is in part going to rely on the appraisal of the new sales, but it's also going to rely on the losers who bought property, you know, like 130 in December. You know, say December 30th. There we go, December 30th. All right? So if the person who bought a home in December for $500,000 got, I don't know, $10,000 in flooring incentives, and the guy who bought the home in, uh, uh, in, in January got, uh, you know, $15,000 in flooring incentives and the guy who's buying the home now is getting $20,000 in incentives, what you're basically doing is you're technically reducing the value of the homes without actually reducing the value of the homes. So you're basically giving people money to artificially keep home values up in the new home builder areas because you're, you're giving people incentives to reduce the actual price of the property without reducing the appraised value of the property. See, when the appraiser goes in, to appraise lot 142 in this example that was sold in January, the appraiser is going to go, hey, well, what did things sell for in December? 500K, sir. Well, what are things selling for now? 500K, sir. And the appraiser's like, sounds good to me. I guess your appraisal is $500,000. This is no skin off appraisals. It's just a way the system works. That's what the banks want. The banks want the appraisals. Now, might there be some notes about incentives? Sure. Do the banks really care? No. So lending could potentially be propped up by artificial, artificially high appraisals because of incentives. Uh, and, and they don't have to be monetary incentives. The builder could have already gone in and upgraded the homes. So in theory, they don't have to give you the 20 grand. They could just go, hey, have this home with fancier flooring. And the appraiser can't really adjust for that very well because they're already new homes. You're already on a condition level. I think they new construction C1. It's hard to go C1 is is, you know, even better than like a uh, uh, new construction might be C2. I'm not an appraiser, but basically there are these classifications. And it's hard to say just because one house has slightly better flooring that all of a sudden the entire condition value of that house is so much more and you have to make an adjustment for it. I'm really going to skim past this really quick, but I'm basically telling you a home builder can throw an extra 50 grand into a house and it's not going to make it so much substantially different that the appraiser is actually going to be able to make any kind of difference on the valuation for that. Generally, when you have valuations that are different because of the condition, it's because somebody went through and spent, you know, $500,000 on a remodel for a $5 million home versus somebody else who spent $50,000 on a remodel on a $5 million home, right? Then you could get more condition adjustments for stuff that's new. Like in other words, what I'm saying is for like the, the 99 cent new flooring to actually make a difference compared to the $7 new flooring, everything in the home needs to be built to a substantially better degree for it to actually make a difference in the appraisals. And so the point of saying that is that home builders can artificially keep home values high by just putting in slightly better flooring, and the appraiser's not actually making a negative adjustment for that. In other words, in two months from now, you could still sell a home for 500K, and you could potentially put $40,000 worth of upgrades into it, and the appraiser's not making an adjustment for it. The appraiser's like, well, it looks like we're still at 500K. That's called dealing with your backlog. That's making sure your next homes that are being sold aren't ruining your prior appraisals. That's what this individual on Twitter is saying. And the individual here is making this argument that people might not be able to qualify uh, for these homes, but we're writing the contracts anyway, because we basically want to inflate the numbers because we don't want to lose our jobs. So the builders are like, you guys need to sell these homes, do whatever you got to do to sell the homes or else you're fired. And the sales reps are like, dude, like nobody's coming in to buy these homes, even because we're giving them incentives. And this is where it becomes concerning. And the, the sales reps are like, whatever, we'll just write the contract anyway and send it to the builder. The builder just cares about getting contracts. So the sales rep writes the contract, sends it to the builder. The builder's like, okay, got a contract. All right. Somebody's willing to pay 500K. Great. Sounds great. Hey, appraiser, by the way, we got another contract for 500K. We're doing good. When the reality is if that person doesn't close, eventually the cards fall. Eventually those deals contract, uh, fall through and cancel. And when those deals fall through and cancel, what happens? Inventory goes up. And that's the biggest concern that you have for real estate is an increase in inventory. So increasing inventory probably doesn't come from resale homes because people have locked in low interest rates, right? It probably actually comes from new construction home builders who are resistant uh, to large-scale price reductions in the face of higher rates. And what have rates been doing recently? Rates have jumped. They came down a little bit in December and January, but they've jumped right back to nearly, uh, we're, get, we're on on the path back to nearly the highs that we had in October, November. Uh, we're not quite there yet. We are there on the two-year, but mortgage rates generally follow the 10-year treasury yield. And the 10-year treasury is sitting at 3.7. We went down to like 3.3 uh, uh, just a little bit ago, uh, and we were trending down, but now we're trending up. So with rates jumping... And this potential inventory surge coming from new construction, at the same time as you get year-over-year pain in real estate, you've got the poten- and and you have REIT liquidations because people want their money out of REITs. You've got some potential issues. Now the year-over-year numbers are important to look at. We can actually look at some of the year-over-year numbers by looking at the Redfin data center, uh, and it's really simple that we're going to end up uh, crossing. These year-over-year numbers, which actually finally start creating fear in the real estate market that, oh my Lord, home prices are actually coming down. Because right now, if you look at year-over-year prices a year ago, we're actually still higher than where we were last year, uh, nominally. See, take a look at this. Home prices right now, national average sitting at 347. Well, that's about 1% higher than where we were last year in January. And what happens if we stay at 347? and all of a sudden we get to, say, March, and we compare to 374. Well, 374 year-over-year now became 347. You're down 7.3%. Now, all of a sudden, people start getting nervous. And then what happens when we get to May or June or July where we're actually comparing 347, assuming housing prices don't fall anymore, compared to 388 on a national average? Home prices are now down over 10%. And that's not even going into some markets where things are getting ugly, Uh, like, oh, Boise is a good one. You go to like, for example, Boise, Idaho. What do you have over here? Look at that. Housing prices are falling even more every single week. So you're looking at 444 divided by uh, 547. When you get to that comparison, you're down almost 19%. So you do have some serious issues coming for real estate. So the dangers for housing are these higher lot values, which are going to kill margins for builders. In addition to cancellations at builders. I think that potentially combined with high values for builder stocks actually creates a really good short opportunity uh, for builders. Potentially, you know, I'm not telling you it's a guarantee. It's certainly not personalized financial advice for your portfolio. But anyway, there's a huge danger for builders and builder stocks. There's a, a very big risk of increasing inventory, lowering prices, not because homeowners are selling, but because of REIT liquidations and builders. But then when you get the year-over-year fear, combined with rates jumping, you have even more of a problem. In my opinion, in order to actually prevent a a more substantial housing burden or or crash, you need to see the 10-year Treasury yield get below 2.75. I've been pounding my fist on the table for over a year now saying the more the 10-year Treasury yield is over 2.75, the more pain you're going to get for longer. And it's been pretty volatile over here. You can see on this chart, uh, that the chart is unfortunately trending up again. Now, hopefully that stops. Maybe the CPI report comes in low and the high jobs report end up, everything leads to disinflation, great. Then you put a floor under the housing market, you get your 15 to 25% correction as I've been talking about for a year on this channel. I've been talking about this since January of 2022, uh, this 15 to 25% correction coming. People called me you know, crazy. Now we've already seen 15 to 20% declines, and there's the potential of even more declines. But I hate to say it, this guy's tweet, uh, Jacob, uh, this is bad because really what you're suggesting is that home builder stocks are rallying under uh, false pretenses. That, that uh, really, home builders, it, unintentionally, just because home sales reps don't want to lose their jobs, you're basically having inadvertent fraud happening. To prop up uh, sales for people who are buying homes with appraisals that are based on houses actually selling for what somebody is in escrow for, you know, next down the line, let's the backlog appraise under false pretenses that somebody's actually, uh, 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 you, you know, buying a home after someone else uh, at, a, at the similar valuation. That's scary. So, you get some real, real issues happening in the new construction space, and I would be very cautious. And I'm potentially considering opening up shorts on uh, on some of the home builders uh, that I choose. I'll be posting all of the alerts for that uh, coming up probably this week here in the Stocks and Psychology and Money Group. So stay tuned for that. <sighs> the world feels crazy. Yeah, it does. Everything's just in, in in a crazy environment right now. It is all crazy right now the the big housing short we should call it that the big housing short Ay. yeah it's just wild so uh, let's see what kind of comments we got here short bolt yeah no kidding only problem switching to renting yeah well fortunately new rents are coming down no we're probably not going to see uh, foreclosures so I wouldn't worry so much about that we're not we're not at that level uh, my house went up forty k in one year though no congratulations (laughs) like it doesn't matter that home prices went up it matters what's happening now and what's happening now is there are problems the the whole point of what i made was that homeowners probably won't sell because they've locked in the low rates and they're insulated that's probably why you're not going to see a foreclosure crisis right these homeowners are still wildly insulated Uh, car for coin says he is he has he's here for the hopium That's because he's investing in Coinbase.
3: (laughs) Oh,
0: what's up, Matt? Welcome aboard, man. (laughs) I love the MKR. Thanks, dude. Appreciate that, man. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just just a wilderness out there. Matt and I went to sushi in New York. That was fun, dude. I I, I still remember that. That was cool. Thanks, man. The the, uh, Einstein of Wall Street uh, uh, told us where to go, too. (laughs) That was fun. Matt came to the ringing of the bell. All righty then. Now, what do we have to talk about? So we talked about CPI weightings. We talked real estate. Talked about recession. Hmm. Let's see here. There's some... There's... there's a, Oh, yeah. Uh, I was looking at the put-call ratio on Tesla. Put-call ratio on Tesla is up to... Um, Uh, 1.5 from 1.3 weeks ago. So you're seeing a lot of puts getting set up on Tesla right now, which is actually quite interesting because the volatility is relatively low. Uh, But the put-call ratio on the S&P 500 is actually lower than where it has been. I mean, there was a period where a few, about a month ago, uh, actually back in December, uh, people had about twice as many puts as they had calls. The put-call ratio was like two. Uh, It was over two for a period of time. It was absolutely insane. And, uh, that's settled down a little bit, but, uh, there, there are some serious shorts against Tesla right now. <laughs> is something to pay attention to. Uh, so if you're, uh, if you're trading options, lots of puts against Tesla and Vol's pretty low right now. All right. What else do we have here? Uh, energy stocks, <laughs> Tesla needs to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Tes- Tesla only dropped eight percent Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Tesla falling because it's ran so much, uh, uh, you know, to the upside. But then again, you have to sort of evaluate that against the idea that, well, what if it ran because, you know, it was fundamentally undervalued, which I believe that it was. And uh, it was really driven down by a downtrend triggered by Elon selling. The Elon selling was a disaster. Chat GPT has predicted the stock crash of two fifteen. Yeah, a lot of people are circulating that right now. Especially Dan, uh, Dan, Dan in ChatGPT predicts the end of the world for everything. But that's the day after CPI. It'd be funny if ChatGPT ends up being right. It's the it's the life cycle. What goes up must come down. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately everything's a cycle, right? Uh, especially the uh, real estate market. There's there's nothing more cyclical than housing. Uh, which it shouldn't be, to some extent, because it it just it creates barriers for individuals. It makes things more expensive, uh, and uh, the boom bust cycle is is painful. But uh, I, I think most people who own homes uh, and bought homes are are pretty well insulated. Bill Ackman's considering possibly listing his uh, Pershing Holdings. That'll be interesting. Seeing uh, basically a uh, institution, another institution, going public. And there's a lot of talk about IPOs for 2023, even Stripe potentially considering going public. I think that'll be very interesting. Uh, The, um, you know, IPOs basically died after the 2020 crash uh, or or 2022 crash. IPOs really died. The boom of 2020 and 2021 was a great time to IPO. Now it's uh, it's a pretty rough time to uh, IPO. Starting off as a realtor, should I begin saving... A year's worth of rent before going head on. I don't know that you need that much, but yeah, I mean, if you're getting started, you want to save as much as possible, that's for sure, because you'll probably be living off rice and beans for a while. Will investor day drive up Tesla? $4.99 question. In my opinion, no. I actually think that's probably an easy short. Usually, uh, investor day is driven by retail excitement, and then it's buy the rumor, sell the news, as generally the... uh, the way to play that that's my thesis at least I signed a pre-approval for half a million but can't buy anything in Vancouver yeah because you're in Vancouver you could probably find some real estate in Vancouver uh, let's let's go take a look let's let's look at Vancouver real estate uh, can I go is does does uh Zillow work let's find out Vancouver all right let's see let's see what's for sale in Vancouver together it is is an expensive area, that's for sure. All right, let's drop the price a lot because uh, you get a lot of million-dollar listings over here. All right, so these are Canadian dollars, so they're pretty inexpensive. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go down to like 600K. Okay, okay, well, look at that. There's plenty of stuff here. What are you talking about? It's got a 500K. Yeah, look at that. 45 listings under 500,000 Canadian dollars. What do you mean you can't buy anything? You don't want to buy anything. That's your problem. You have a wants versus needs problem, man. That's what you got. Look at this. Look at that. I get a one bedroom, one bath, 518 square feet, move-in ready, gorgeous apartment uh, in Vancouver. And this is awesome. You could totally buy something with a $500,000 pre-approval letter. The problem is you don't want to. You don't want to because you don't want to live in a one bedroom. That's your problem. You got to start somewhere. That's not the market's problem. That's your problem. Vancouver's awesome and real estate prices have been falling in Vancouver so I don't I don't know that you necessarily have to uh, like hurry up and buy I, I'm not encouraging anybody to just hurry up and buy real estate right now but uh you know I mean there are plenty of things for you to choose from here maybe maybe you could even get a little fixer upper and let's see here here's the studio for 299 uh you know and I don't I don't know Vancouver so I don't know the areas over here terms of what's a good area or a bad area. I'm just trying to see if I can find something that maybe looks like a little bit of a fixer-upper. It uh, uh, looks decent. Oh, this one looks pretty dated. See, look at this. 349000 bucks, built in the 60s. So, you know, you got the janky 60 elevator, but they got the nasty parquet floors. And, yeah, I mean, these photos don't look that great. Uh, uh, I don't know where it is, but it, it's, it's still Vancouver. You got the nasty old kitchen, uh, old Formica countertop. I mean, this. So you could probably you could probably get a deal on this sucker because this doesn't look that great. Oh, that looks beautiful! Look at that. You got a terrace with a water view. No, oh, Vancouver looks nice. This person ripped the pictures from somewhere. But anyway, here's a place for three hundred and forty-nine thousand uh, dollars. You know, I, I think I think the thing is, uh, people get this idea that uh, like like you know, uh, uh, oh well, well you're paying like a thousand dollars, thousand Canadian dollars per square foot. Well, if you don't like it, don't live in Vancouver. It's simple. It's not that hard, folks. If it's too expensive, move. Or buy something smaller. It's not that hard. Obviously, Vancouver is desirable enough. And yes, real estate prices are falling. Yes, real estate prices are in the process of falling even more. No, I wouldn't encourage buying right now. But let's broadly forget about the real estate market for a moment. And let's put our big boy thinking hats on for a moment. If you can't afford it, move. If you can't afford it, uh, but you don't want to move, then take advantage of the fact that you're in a high cost of living area and get a job that pays you more. People don't want to hear reality, but if you're only approved for 500K uh, uh, Canadian dollars in Canada, uh, and, and you're not willing to live in a one bedroom, then you have two choices. Make more money or move. It's that simple. You know, like you, you, can't, you, you can't have this mindset of, but Kevin, I shouldn't have to pay a thousand dollars a foot to live in Vancouver. Uh, sorry, that's called the market. That's the way it works. The value that Vancouver provides to people who live in Vancouver, and I don't know anything about Vancouver. It's just the way it is. But the value, obviously, that that city provides to people is so high and the opportunities that it provides to people is so high that other people are managing to figure it out. And other people are managing to make the payment or they're managing to live in a smaller unit. But just complaining about it, it's the same thing you get in San Francisco, which San Francisco's turned to crap. But you got that all the time. People are like, "Oh, I can't, I can't afford anything." Well, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for a four-bedroom house with a white picket fence, and they're all like five million dollars. It's like, well, how many people are living there? Oh, it's just me. Well, you're an idiot. Start smaller. ay, <laughs> ay. yeah. Uh, so you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have the right mindset to, to be able to go ahead and and uh, you know survive in in high cost of living areas. Uh, and if you don't like it. I'll sell you a place in, uh, in Indianapolis, okay? You want to move to India? You want you want cheap housing? I got an $80,000 house to sell you in Indianapolis. And then you could get a two-bedroom, one-bath with a yard. you want a three and two or a four and two with a white picket fence, Hundred twenty dollars Why is it hundred twenty dollars for a house with 2,000 square feet and a yard? Because it's harder to make money there. The cost of living is lower. When the cost of living is lower, it means it's harder to make money there. It means you have less opportunities to make money there. So pick your, pick your your make your choice. You want to live in an area where housing is cheaper and you're like, oh, I got all this for $100,000. Great. What opportunities do you have in the area? Way fewer than a high cost of living area. Now, does that mean you can't make a lot of money and live in Indianapolis? No, look, I'll, I could pack up my stuff right now and go I'll buy a $200,000 house that's five times the size of what I'm living in now in Indianapolis. Uh, and, and I could continue to make these YouTube videos, but I'm in a unique situation. I don't have to commute to a job or, or have a business nearby or whatever, right? So, so there's that unique opportunity. Uh, so yeah, of course, there are always exceptions to every rule, but the exception is not the norm. What drives real estate value is the opportunity that people have in that area. Whether that is weather-based, whether that is job-based, factory-based, tech uh, startup-based, social-based, I don't know, whatever. Uh, The reason values are what they are is because of the opportunities in an area. And to complain that you can't afford anything when clearly you can, you're pre-approved for $500,000 and I found 47 listings for you, is wrong. It just means uh, it doesn't align with what you want. But then, you know, capitalism doesn't work uh, in in a in a wants way. You have to go earn it. That's my take. Okay, so that's my my real estate Vancouver rant. All right, what else do we have? Uh, well, let's see. It's uh, it's almost seven a.m. You know, normally we'd be in the course member live stream right now, but it's it's the weekend. We're starting the Elite Hustlers live stream soon too i'm pl- I'm sending an announcement out on that on monday i think monday or tuesday we're sending that announcement out uh but anyway yeah uh okay so what is this so 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 now it's about race the male whites perspective is funny what are you talking about oh super unaware of white male privilege nothing that i just said has to do with race I don't care if you're Asian, you're black, you're, you're uh, uh, Latin American. If you want to make it in America and in capitalism, guess what? You provide value. I don't care what the color of your skin is. Get off your ass and work. Don't tell me that it's white privilege to say if you want to make money, you need to get off your ass and work. You have every opportunity sitting here, leaving racist comments on YouTube. You have every opportunity to get off your ass, just like anybody else watching the stream and go work. The licensing requirements for you to become a real estate agent are exactly the same. Whether you're black, white, Asian, a woman, a, a man, I don't care if you're trans, I don't care. The requirements are exactly the same. In fact, you know what people do in America? They actually play to their advantage. Guess what people do who are black and are really successful? A lot of them, they follow the same requirements. They work their ass off just the way other people are who get licensed. And then guess what? They go into communities and say, you know what? I am different. I am someone who's actually not let race hold me down. And I'm going to work my ass off. And they use their race to their advantage. They're like, look, I'm a successful black person. I'm a successful Hispanic. I'm a successful Asian. That means uh, because of people's impression of the world, I had to maybe work harder to get ahead. And guess what? Now I'm gonna work harder for you. They actually internalize that idea. So rather than looking at the color of your skin or your disadvantages and somehow saying, oh, well, because I'm black, I can't succeed, get off your ass and then turn that around and actually think, how can I actually use that to my advantage? Look at me. I'm successful and I have a different color of skin and I will work even harder for you because that's the impression that maybe then people have. And guess what? Now you have a built-in advantage. Now you've turned a disadvantage into an advantage. It's the way you look at it. If you have this mindset that, oh, some white guy on the internet is telling me I need to work harder and I can get a license just like a white person can get a license. And somehow you think you can't because of the color of your skin. Fine. Then, then suffer for the rest of your life in, in the woe is me, the world owes me a free house and free rent and free everything and be miserable and leave comments like that. I don't care, but I am unapologetically a believer that anyone can come a, a, to America or a, a developed country and they can make it. I was born in Germany, I'm not even American. The opportunities that you have in Germany compared to here are nothing compared to what the opportunities are that you have in America. Uh, You know, I went from basically going through foreclosure with my parents and having no money uh, to working my ass off to try to make it. You know, it's not like I went out of college and went to some Ivy League school because I'm white or whatever and all of a sudden got a six-figure paying job. I got my real estate license just like anybody else can. Anybody else can do it. You know, you're stuck in a low cost of living area, get a skill, learn how to provide value, get up, move to a higher cost of living area where there are opportunities for you to get incentivized or subsidized housing. There's no harm in doing that. You know, you can can move from wherever you are right now. I guarantee you you can move from wherever you are right now and you can make it work moving to the most beautiful weather in the world in San Diego. You pick your butt up, you move to San Diego. Don't care if you have to couch surf, that's what you have to do when you get started. While you're couch surfing, everybody's got a laptop, take your laptop and guess what? Learn how to be a real estate agent. Learn how, learn the real estate market, learn everything you can about uh, a about, uh, uh, real estate in San Diego. Go get a suit from the Salvation Army. Nobody knows the difference. You don't have to have a lot of money to start up and do these things but guess what you're gonna do? You're gonna get, you're gonna hang your license at a real estate brokerage, and again, I don't care what color of your skin is, you're gonna hang your license at a real estate brokerage in San Diego, and they'll gladly invite you in, they'll mentor you for free because that's how real estate brokerages work. They will literally hand you open house signs to go get off your butt and work, and now, uh, again, don't care what your race is, you wear a suit from the Salvation Army, you're living on a couch, But what are you doing? You're actually trying, rather than leaving bullshit comments on the internet about how your race is keeping you down. Don't get me wrong. Race for generations has been a problem. Poor people are statistically more likely a minority, or put another way, somebody who is a minority is more likely to be poor. I get it. The institutions in America have screwed uh, people who are poor. And that's why you have to leave the poor areas. You have to leave. That's the way it works. And unfortunately in America, Poor people become poor. That's the way, I'm just telling you the reality. Poor people become poor. Poverty concentrates. What happens is when things get expensive is people go to lower cost of living areas. Then more people go to those lower cost of living areas. Then the schools get worse. The police services get worse. The medical services get worse. The healthcare and hospital services get worse. Everything gets worse when poverty concentrates. And the only way to break the cycle of poverty is to leave physically leave the low cost of living areas in my opinion and work harder and work your ass off now unfortunately america doesn't teach that because there are too many people on twitter and the internet going we just need universal basic income and at some point we will need that but i am the believer that anybody who's watching my videos doesn't like can make it anybody who's actually watching these videos and these channels can make it that's my belief now i'm gonna go goodbye